Welcome to the podcast of the Sunday Celebration from the Center for Spiritual Living in Huntsville, Alabama. We hope you feel the grace, the beauty, and the love of our community as you hear the message of the week. Many blessings to you. So following the beautiful music of Mendelssohn, the mindfulness bell takes us into this music of the soul. And in that music of the soul, there's a silence. People were talking about the cranes, the multitude of cranes in a dance, moving in unison. And we're not separate from that unity. When two or more are gathered in my name, says Jesus, I am there. And so we gather here in this space to experience the love that knows no other, the light of the one that shines through the many. And if we see this unity in something as beautiful as the cranes, well, then we know that the very act of seeing that unity means that that unity exists within us. And so life becomes the spiritual practice. And every breath is a part of that practice. And so this month of January, we are exploring the first four chapters of the science of mind underneath the theme, you are the one that you've been looking for. Could we change that to you are the one? And we've been looking for this one seemingly out in the world. But there's something that happens when you see it in the world. It's because it's awakening within you. You're not separate. Huh. And then something begins to alchemically work within our soul. It's no longer about the me person. But we recognize that we've moved into a sense of we. We are the world. We are the world, we are the ones. We are the ones who make a better place. So let's start living. Let's start offering this wonderful world to each other. But first we have to discover it from within ourselves. Uh, and so life becomes the dance and everyone is a partner in that dance. And then something shifts within us, constantly emerging. We could call it the ripening of the soul. Huh. Last Sunday, we explored the idea that the premise must be God, that all there is is God. All there is is the one outpicturing in multiplicity. And then this week, we are exploring the idea that the focus now must be you. Who am I being in this dance of the one with itself? And in that sweet asking of the question, well, then something within can awaken and respond. We get to listen with our heart. 
not necessarily with our mind that wants to concretize it and turn it into a belief or a goal, but to listen with this jubilant and beholden soul that says, I have arrived, I am home. And this is a home where I can embrace uncertainty, where I can embrace the mystery of belonging, where I can step out of the container of who I think I am and find the content of the one that is beyond belief. And then you hear the sage saying, all belief comes from an ego. And so when we let go of what we think we believe, well then something that is always there, we'll call it the truth, the truth can awaken. The truth can guide us. The truth can really irritate the bejeebies out of us sometimes because it can show us where we're stuck. And then we know that the truth can set us free. And so we come here to this dance together with a willingness to let the truth flower within our consciousness, not into a belief, not with a bunch of knowledge, but with a wisdom inherent within the one life that says, it doesn't matter, my darling. And in that it doesn't matter, well, then perhaps we can discover what does matter. So with that curiosity, with that sense of wonder and awe, I invite you to open your eyes and be here now. I love looking out at you and seeing myself reflected. Some of you have beards. Some of you don't have hair. Well, I don't see the bald ones. Oh, there's one. And we have the female. Oh, and another one, my brother here. But in this, in this multiplicity, you know, we can see the one life flowering, smiling back. And, um, and we're in this journey together. Last night, I was kept awake all night by this thing that wouldn't leave my head. And I came to the center this morning and I Googled it up. Um, and it turned out to be Robert Frost's famous poem. And um, whose woods these are, I think I know. His house is in the village, though. He will not see me stopping here to watch his woods fill up with snow. And then the part that was haunting me all night was, the woods are lovely, dark, and deep, but I have promises to keep and miles to go before I sleep and miles to go before I sleep. And so I Googled this miles to go before I sleep and it said, it's a Robert Frost poem. He wrote it in 1921. He read it in 1961 at John F. Kennedy's whatever, and he passed in 1963. Now, as a young boy in South Dakota, I remember memorizing that poem. But why would it come to haunt me at age 75 all night long in my dream? So the authorities of poetry, that lovely phrase, and miles to go before I sleep, is all about the death of the identity and really the birth of this new sense of who we are. And so he did it twice. The woods are lovely, dark, and deep. There is this something dark and deep within us that wants to reveal itself. But I have promises to keep. There's the egoic self that has its agenda. I've got to show up at the church. I've got to get dressed. I've got to do this. We've got to fix the pipes. We've got to do the plumbing. All the responsibilities of life that we all have. I've got to move my daughter into a new house. And there are miles to go before I sleep. So the question was, was Robert Frost suicidal? Did he yearn for that sleep of death where we're set free from this mortal coil? Or could there's miles to go before I sleep? Could that be the journey of waking up? 
and going to sleep to the false self so that something can awaken. It's all a paradox. So as there are no accidents in the universe, this week a video came to me of Richard Rohr and it was at the Lutheran, Texas Lutheran University where he was giving a talk on a book that he'd written that we've taught here at the center called Falling Upward. And I heard it in a whole different way. Richard Rohr, this Franciscan monk, who's kind of one of my mentors, you talk about the thing itself and the way it works. He said, when we come into this incarnation in the first phase of life, he said, it's all about creating the container of me. It's all about the container of me, my goals, my achievements, my possessions, my belief system, my religion of choice, the frozen chosen. I was raised in the frozen chosen, Seamus until we moved out of the frozen chosen and went to the Methodist Methodist, and then we left the Methodist Methodist, and we went to the Episcopalian Episcopalians, and then we left the Episcopalian Episcopalians, we went to the Unitarian Universalists, and then my mother one wanted to go back to the Lutheran, so we went back to the Lutheran, and then I said, Imagine no religion, I wonder if you can. And I said to the universe, I will do anything but become a minister. And then I fell into a science of mind church and I found a teaching that took me to the second phase of life, which is what Richard Rohr is talking about. So much of us get caught up in that first thing. And he says, the problem with that is it leads to addictive patterns, things that don't work. And the beauty in falling upward is you have to die to this first stage of life. And most people don't want to die to that because it's all about me and my beliefs and my, no, that's got to go. And then what happens is the second phase of life begins to emerge. And you know, the first phase wants certainty, wants predictability. I want to know what to look for. Second phase is comfortable with uncertainty. You're in the second phase, Thomas. To be comfortable with uncertainty. The second phase of life is a both and phase of life. You can be sad, but you can be luminous at the same time. In the first phase, you want to just be happy. You don't want to be sad. You want to treat away the stuff that you don't like. Sylvia knows what that's all about. That doesn't work. First phase of life. And so Richard Rohr says, when you open to the second phase of life, you can hold paradox in your hands. So this is when suffering happened. He wrote one of the chapters was called The Necessary Suffering. We need suffering in order to wake up. The 12-step program knows that. You have to declare, I am hopeless or helpless over something so that I can fall back into something greater that can lift me up. And I pulled out my Thich Nhat Hanh, who is one of my great teachers, and he talks about that, necessar that nece necessary suffering as the pathway to nirvana. Well, this is for you, Lee. When you see the suffering and you accept it and say you don't try to get rid of it, when you see yourself going down the path of what happened in the past or projecting into the future, in the sacred moment, you find the nirvana in that. Here's how he puts it, this living saint. He's still living. He's not living on the planet, though. And, and my Zen calendar, Tignatan. I have arrived, I am home. What you see behind my head, that was penned by him, is the shortest Dharma talk that he has ever given. I have arrived, I am home, means I don't want to run after anything anymore. I'm not chasing after a container that's adequate for me. I've stopped the running. And you need this insight in order to be truly established in the here and now. And then embrace the life that you have with all of its wonders. That means its shadow and its light then you're not fragmented by only chasing after what feels right. You can meet the struggle, the suffering on the planet. And then Richard Rohr says, you reach a luminous sadness. I'm sad when I see these people running across the borders trying to flee from oppression in their countries and they're labeled, we want to get rid of them. I see them as just children that want to be loved and held. Not a problem. So here's the necessity of suffering, according to Thich Nhat Hanh. The Buddha used the word nirvana 
to describe the pleasant of experience, the pleasant experience of the cooling of the flames of our afflictions. I can see, I know Tina when she's in the flames, or Tia when she's in the flames of her affliction. I saw a little bit of it this morning, but then I saw the nirvana just kind of blossom. The otter just popped through and she was no longer struggling in the flames of whatever it was. You know, don't these people wake up? Can't they see it? It's stupid. I've had that feeling a time or two. When we transform our suffering and remove our wrong ideas, very naturally, we can touch a refreshing place of peace within ourselves that we call in Buddhism nirvana. Thomas and I have talked about this many times. You can get stuck in the ain't it awful place, or you can just surrender to that peace that's always waiting for us. He calls it home. And there's nirvana. I was standing out on the front porch this week, and I was thinking, how can I speak about uh, the, the thing itself working through me? And as I'm standing on the front porch, I'm taking communion with the camellias that are blossoming in the corner. I'm seeing the squirrels running down the tree and then they leap to another tree and they show me the beauty of their flexible lives. I'm watching um, the dogs walk down the street and they stop at Bert's water bowl and I'm seeing that beautiful way of serving the dogs by keeping Bert's water bowl full, even because he loved his water bowl, so now it's the bowl of of the neighborhood. Little moments of nirvana. When we transform our suffering, we find this nirvana is waiting for us. So there is an intimate connection between our suffering and nirvana. So you don't want to get rid of the suffering. It's intelligent. What my Zen calendar this week said, he who tries to get rid of his suffering will suffer more. So instead of, so Thich Nhat Hanh would say, when sadness comes up, there's my little sadness, come on in. I have a photo, a Gigi May collage in the classroom and it's of all my dogs and cats that are no longer on the planet. And every time I look at that, I feel kind of a luminous sadness. Sad that they're no longer here on the planet, but a sense of luminosity that I feel their love looking back at me from every face. I got here early. My prayer partner wasn't able to talk today. So I went out to the wind phone and I was talking to everybody. I started with Vandana Srivasana, the lovely lady who was the reason we have the Vandana garden. Vandana means prayer in Sanskrit. And she was a young lady who came here for a brief time. I was with her at her deathbed, but she kind of lives in my heart. So a nirvana moment, standing out at the wind phone, talking to those that are gone and realizing they're not really gone. They're just not here in form. Oh, well. There is an intimate connection between our suffering and nirvana. If we did not suffer, we how could we recognize the peace of nirvana? Well, I think that's kind of a sweet little thought, isn't it? If we didn't know how to suffer, how could we open to nirvana? When I went to Haley's uh, funeral, there was a lot of sadness, but I, I felt so... It's like she comes to me the night before, just like Sandy did. They let me say, let them know that I'm still here. Now, there's a little moment of nirvana in the great sadness that's... Um, Anyway, so if we did not suffer, we could not recognize the peace of nirvana. And without suffering, there would be no awakening from the suffering. Just as without hot coals, we cannot have cool ashes. Suffering and awakening go hand in hand. Now, this is an enlightened teacher. So when these paths of sadness, anger, suffering, instead of trying to get rid of them in the second phase of life, could we know it's a both and scenario? I'm, yes, I'm an enlightened person, but I'm also a human being who has suffering, who has sadness, who has a sense of confusion on the planet. And then with that confusion, could I embrace the confusion? I look at the human species and wonder, how can we be who we are? Can't we, even my evangelical sister, she says, I'm evolving in her religion. I want a God of love, not a God of judgment and condemnation. So if, if they can evolve, I guess we all can evolve. 
But the suffering led the way. As we learn to handle our suffering, we are learning to generate moments of nirvana in the world. Well, isn't that special? I always call Jody when I'm suffering, and she always takes me to nirvana. She reminds me that I belong to a pug, and there ain't any greater service. And, and, and the pug, he's got all these challenges, like so many of us, but he doesn't complain. It's his sacred path to transformation. So I'm learning to let him be my little guru on this journey. Each one of us can touch small amounts of nirvana every day. It's just nirvana coming here and looking at your face. When Jean Ann walked in and put her arms around me, where I think I threw mine around her, where are you? There you are. I had a little moment of nirvana there. And when Susan came in and she was going to hand out these little plates for your financial donations, there was a little moment of nirvana there. And I'm realizing it's all nirvana, isn't it? I thought T and Shay were still up there at the funeral, and they're the first ones to stand in the classroom. And I said, oh, my God, you're here. They said, well, where did you think we'd be? I said, I thought you were up there in Ohio. And so I had a little moment of nirvana when my brother and sister held me. Anta, touching nirvana. Removal of afflictions is the presence of nirvana in your life. As you recognize, embrace, and transform your anger, fear, and despair, this is very Course in Miracles, Robert, as you transform and embrace and transform the anger, fear, and despair, then you start experiencing these moments of bliss, these moments of nirvana, where you see God in the midst of everything. And so it was a necessary suffering that took us to this place of transformation. Who is it that has, is it you with your sibling that has the brain tumor? Someone has a brain tumor? Oh, your brother. I saw that Michael Strahan's 19-year-old daughter has an inoperable brain tumor, and she's come on TV this week, and I even Googled it up to watch her. She's so beautiful, so fragile, but she's using this suffering that she's going through as an opportunity to wake up humanity, that she's meeting the suffering. She's meeting it with compassion, and she's saying, I want this to be public so that all of those who are also suffering with something like this can find those moments of nirvana. And just watching her meeting this brain tumor at age 19, I felt the nirvana because she's so loved. And her father just held her in his arms and he says, honey, you are helping so many people by your willingness to make this public. Samsara and nirvana are one. When we cool the flames of our anger and having understood its roots, the anger then transforms into compassion. Isn't that lovely? This is the experience of nirvana. Anger turns into compassion. I heard it was uh, Raphael Warnack when they had all those shootings in Nashville. And he says, we've got to stop the people with the guns shooting our young children. And he quoted St. Augustine. He said, St. Augustine, a man of color like myself, said, it's important to affect change on the planet that we get angry at the stuff that upsets us. And in this case, it's the shooting, the people with these guns going in and I've always wondered why someone, no, I don't even want to go there. And yet he said, not only the anger that doesn't say this isn't acceptable to bring guns into schools and shoot kids or bring into a black church in South Carolina and shoot the congregation because you don't like their color. He says, then have the courage to do something about it. Have the courage to do something. Bob and I were talking before the service this morning and he's, he's been blessed by all these baby deer in his backyard. And the neighbors are saying, by you feeding the deer, you're creating more of a problem in the neighborhood. But his heart has been opened by these little deer. And he and Kelly go out there. And in a strange sort of way, when you serve another, the other, you're really serving yourself because we're not separate. Back to the suffering, beautiful thing of nirvana. When we cool the flames of anger, we understand its roots. When we stop running from the stuff that's uncomfortable and let go, of all our worries about the future, my husband is terribly worried in this country, 
If certain things happen, he's said he's going to leave the country. Well, when we stop running and let go of our worries about the future and the regrets about the past and come back to enjoy the wonders of life in the present moment, Lee, in the present moment, that is when we touch nirvana and that is when we say, I have arrived, I am home. Home is nirvana, right in the midst of the suffering. You don't have to get rid of the suffering out here. You just open to it and you'll find compassion waiting right underneath. I love to tell that story, that real story of pulling in here one Sunday morning at 7.30 and a mother possum had just been run over and her little babies were lying around her. And I was suffering. I was really suffering. I called Adam and he rushed over by 7.45. We were taking the mother and her babies and she's planted out there in that container. And um, I go back and talk to her. But they're all our children, aren't they, Jody? You know, the mother possum with her little, she just got in a, a moment on the front of the church. I have arrived. When we see the world of phenomena from the perspective of the ultimate, then we see that if there were no death, there could be no birth. Mm. Miles to go before I sleep. And if there were no suffering, there could be no happiness. As they say, without the mud, there would be no lotus. It's out of the mud that the lotus blooms. So they depend on each other to manifest, this lovely little Buddhist saint. So the, the suffering isn't a bad thing. It's a doorway to forgiveness. It's a doorway to compassion. It's a doorway to meet ourselves in those painful moments. And we all have painful moments. You know, I loved it. Bob Dees was talking about getting older. I'm sure you're 10 years younger than me, Bob, and how the body doesn't do what it used to do. I have these big gardens, and they're really too much for me at this stage of 75. So I had this young 22-year-old man, and boy, he could do all those heavy things that I couldn't do. He took out that axe, and he was hacking out all the dead, and and I thought, oh, I've got a young 22-year-old man helping me in this garden and transplanting things and carrying pots around, and thank God for young people. And yet, Richard Rohr says in that beautiful book, Falling Upward, he says, we have a culture that worships youth and disparages the elders. And he says, in all the evolved cultures on the earth, the elders are considered important in the tribe because they hold the wisdom. The indigenous people know that. The people in India know that the elders hold the wisdom. But he says, in our culture, we've made a reverence out of youth to be young and vital and confused. He says, we need to reprioritize it. Going on. In the ultimate dimension of reality in itself, there is no birth and there is no death. This is the second phase of life. There is no suffering and there is no happiness. There is no coming and there is no going. There is no good and there is no evil. That's the mind that's duplicitous. And in non-dual reality, you don't have good and evil. They're all states of mind. That's religious science 101. He's saying the same thing. When we can let go of all ideas and notions, including the idea of self, the me person, a human being, a living being, a lifespan that we know is terminal, then we touch our true nature of reality in itself. And when we do that, we have arrived, we are home, and we are in nirvana which is always waiting for us. Now, we can choose to be in samsara. That's the struggling. Or we can know that samsara and nirvana are one. So in the midst of the samsara, you find the nirvana. Thomas and I work on that all the time. When he comes with samsara, I take him right into nirvana. And then we meet it, and then we look at the samsara not as a bad thing, but as a necessary thing for nirvana to awaken. Skipping down. very. He says, when you can focus on simple things, these are Buddhist things, emptiness, well, that means there's, there's no you and me. There's just the emptiness. What do you think about that, Miss Mary? It doesn't have a lot of thoughts. If I said you're an empty lady, would you smile at me? You're empty of thought, I think. 
There's no multitasker there anymore. Focus on, em- concentrate on emptiness, concentrate on signlessness. It doesn't have to mean anything. Richard Rohr told, he's as a Catholic priest, he says the Eucharist is everything. Dr- eating the flesh, drinking the blood to a Catholic is everything. And he said he went to Japan and Suzuki Roshi, this Zen master was there, and they have the tea ceremony where every little detail is meticulous. So I with my Eucharist and all the signs, what that means, him with his tea ceremony. And so he said Suzuki Roshi sat there. We we're sitting in the tea house and he pours the tea from the cup into this porcelain glass. And then he, then the tea pours over the glass onto the table, onto the floor. He puts the, the teapot down and he claps his hands and he says, it's done. And then they both laughed. So much for the meaning of the ceremony. Anyway, so you have emptiness, signlessness, aimlessness, impermanence, non-craving. These are the good things. Focus on non-craving, all of you craving ones out there. Impermanence, non-craving, and letting go. All of these help us get get into a breakthrough and into our true nature in reality. We don't have to look very far to find nirvana because it is our true nature and it is in this very moment. And lastly, you cannot remove the ultimate from yourself. You cannot remove the ultimate from yourself. And then we have our challenges, don't we, Jean-Anne? We have our little growth opportunities. And then we smile because, you know, this is what's helping heal me into a greater order of being. It's necessary suffering, according to Richard Rohr. Well, I think that's kind of powerful, isn't it, Thomas? I watched that video and I took two pages of notes. Did I get anything that was meaningful? In the first phase, you're chasing after this container. In the second phase, hell if I know. In the first phase, it's all about the container of me. Oh, and he says that becomes a prison. That becomes a prison, the container. Mm. It becomes a prison. And then he says... This has to fall apart because there's something within us that is homesick. There's something within us that wants to get out of the me person and the beliefs and the religions and the politics and the, and the necessary stuff. We want to get out of that. We want to be free. We want to be lighter. Someone said that I used to carry the weight of the world around on my shoulders until I didn't because the world needs whatever it's carrying until it doesn't need it anymore. So what if it's just a subtle shift that will suffer until we don't need to suffer. So that's what Richard Rohr is pointing toward. He told the story of Homer and um, Homer's The Odyssey. And he said his whole book was premised on the Odyssey, which is the story of a man, Odysseus, who left Ithaca and he went to fight in the Trojan Wars. And when the Trojan Wars were done, well then Odysseus wanted to go back to Ithaca to be with his beautiful wife, Penelope, his father, Telemachus, and his son, I can't remember the son's name. It took him 20 years on that quest to get back to Ithaca to his wife. And as he was going home, this is the great journey, he met one of those soothsayers on the side of the road and said, when you get home to your wife and your son and your father, you will have to take another journey. And he gave him this pole, and this is the pole of your liberation. He says, I'm not going on another journey. I've already fought in a war. I've traveled 20 years. He got home, Penelope, and he had wild, wonderful lovemaking. He saw his son, the son, and he was so close, his father. And the next thing you know, the voice says, you've got to go out into the second phase of life. And what he had to do was to go out into the wilderness and plant that stick in the ground and let go of who he thought he was. And so Richard Rohr in this lovely book, Falling Upward, he said, this is the the symbol of what each of us has to do. We have to transcend what we think is identifying us and step into this uncertainty where life is guiding us into something that will flower within us. And he calls it the ripening of our consciousness. Now we just finished this lovely class 
the grace and aging, and she uses the same phraseology. Could we open to the ripening of our soul? Our soul can hold uh, uncertainty. It doesn't need everything to be figured out in the future, Miss Mary, no. It says, okay, I'm stepping into an unknown territory, and there's something within that knows how to guide me through it, and that's where the wisdom of the elder comes in. And you know where the elders are so needed in our culture right now? When someone young comes up to you and their life is falling apart, we, the elders, can say, you'll get through this, my darling. This looks like it's the end of the world for you, but life will go on after X, Y, or Z happens. That's where the elders are here, to hold our hand to assist us in assuming the consciousness that's required as we move through these stages of life. Isn't it nice to know that we have these stages? I'm at that stage right now where death is very much a companion to life. And I've gotten to this beautiful phrase that Thich Nhat Hanh says, there really is no death. And, and yet death and birth go with everything. You die to an old relationship and maybe you give birth to a new one. You die to a belief system that you thought was so sacrosanct. And then you open to another one until you realize what if we could live without belief, beyond belief, into this ripened phase of discovery. And it's all one great discovery. And that takes me to Ernest Holmes because he talks about discovery, discovery, discovery of who you are. And I taught this class of his a while back. It's one of my favorite Ernest Holmes books. It's called This Thing Called You. And that's what we're talking about. The purpose must be you. And here's how he references the you. It's not the widow you. It's not the ego. It's this other you that's right there. So he says, in some way we know not of, through some process which never reveals its face, life has entered into us. With it, the irresistible impulse to create. So divine intelligence has willed it so. Nor you, nor any other person, nor all the wit, science, or philosophy of mankind, nor the inspiration of the saints or the sages can change one bit of it any more than man can arrest the eternal circuits of time, the revolutions of the planet, and the desires of a fledgling to leave its nest or to soar and sing. This something is seeking expression through all of us those great cranes that you all spoke about, it's seeking expression through them. There's a, a beautiful word called entrainment. When you see the birds all flying together, they're entrained. Their consciousness are aligned. If you've seen the chorus girls at the Lido lifting up their legs, they're entrained to one another. The same thing with the cranes. Um, I, have a, I have Napoleon, my old fish in the pond, and Gigi and Raul brought a little koi over. We called her Josie for Josephine. And now it's getting really cold, and he lies in the bottom of the pond, and she's always lying right next to him, just like Raoul and Jean are holding hands. He takes care of her, and he comes up first. And to think that two fish have a relationship, am I going crazy, Thomas? I mean, you talk about wanting love in your life, just look out in the pond, there it is. And it's not a love that is jealous or possessive, or that it's a love that, I don't know, just shares the moment. Isn't that sweet? So Tickton, Ernest Holmes, unity never means uniformity. He said, humanity is made up of innumerable individuals and no two are alike. And yet society is a composite of the whole moving gradually towards some ultimate goal. And what could that goal, Ernest Holmes asked, be other than that we are all one? As Jesus said, that they may be one even as we are one. So could we know that it's all about the oneness, whether it's the birds, whether it's the fish, whether it's humanity? And he goes on to say, you belong to the universe. Well, I think that's where we have to evolve toward, don't we? What would that look like in your life if I said you are a universal being? In which you live, you are the one, you are one with the creative genius back of the vast array of ceaseless motion, this original flow of life. You're a part of that. 
You are as much a part of that as you are the sun, the moon, the earth, the air. There is something in you telling you this. It's like a voice echoing from the mountaintop through this inward vision that it's all part of myself, like a light whose origin no man has ever seen, like an impulse that's welling up for an invisible from an invisible source within. So he's inviting us to experience ourselves in the mystery of who we really are, the universe soul. I quoted Barbara Marks Hubbard the other week, and she said, we are evolving into homo universalis, the universal home, the universal human. And she has a word for that, a universe soul. We are a universe soul. The soul is the way to source. And then you realize you're a soul with a body, not a body with a soul. The body is impermanent or uh, impermanent. Yeah, it's impermanent, but the soul is eternal. So could we shift our identity into this eternal aspect of our being? I was speaking to somebody the other day, and they're still afraid of the idea of death. And we had this long conversation that, uh, oh, because they didn't, they don't have the foundation that we have. When I met Jody, she came in here with her best friend had just died in a car accident, and I still am in relationship with her. She's kind of like reminding me that she's still here. She was with Jody. And I said, so open to that mystery. She's still here. When I come in early, I lie on that sofa and I cover myself with that little quilt that this young man named David made in the hospital when he was dying from AIDS. And every day I would visit him and he would, through his uh, crochet hook, he would needle those little squares. And, and now when I put it on my body, I feel all the love in every little stitch that he put into it. My friend Nancy Schramm, who went here for many years, she lives in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and she likes to knit. So she knitted me a, a prayer shawl. And wouldn't you know it that the blind and deaf pug loves to sleep on the prayer shawl. So I send her photographs of him. And she says, oh, he's getting all those prayers. He's getting all that love. And, and every night I put it on the bed between Trey and me. He curls up. He lies on his prayer shawl. I wrap him in it. He starts to snore, and he's in a place called bliss. I'm just saying. Ernest Holmes, discover how you connect with it. Um, create or perish is the eternal mandate of nature. Be constructive or become frustrated is an equal demand. You cannot escape the conclusion that whatever this thing is, which is, it's seeking expression through everything. That takes you from the me to the we to the all. It's all God seeking to express itself. You saw it in the crane so easily. Could we find it in, in this little group of birds? We are all some part of a universal order. We are an outlet for the universe. And he says, humanity is made up of innumerable individuals. No two are alike. You belong to the universe. Your soul belongs to the universe. And this is your starting point for investigating the meaning of those impulses, those longings, those desires, which accompany you throughout life. There is something calling us to get in that canoe and go down that river and see our oneness in nature in the silence. There's also something in us which wants to watch a Netflix movie and see some kind of crazy out picturing of how humans try to figure their way out. The lovely lady who lives across the street, whose husband died in that Gunnerville, Gunnersville Lake tragedy, he was hit by a barge and he died. And she's from South America. And when I came back from Circle of Love, I saw this thing on the plane. It was called uh, Frank and Rosie. Her husband's name was Frank, by the way. Her name is Myra. And Frank and Rosie is the story about Frank who dies, and all of a sudden, Rosie, his wife in Ireland, is haunted by a dog that won't leave the back porch. And when she opens the door, the dog runs in and jumps in Frank's chair. She says, get out of Frank's chair. So the dog jumps out of Frank's chair, gets on the bed, on Frank's side of the bed. She says, get out of the bed. She chases the dog out of the house, 
And then she goes for a walk on the hills of Ireland. And who do you think's following her? The dog, Frank. The dog follows her home. She tries to chase him away. And she finally says, Frank, is that you? And then she has only one son. She says to her son, I think Frank's back. He says, mother, you're going crazy. The guy next door always had a fancy for Rosie. And so he says, now that Frank's been gone for six months, you want to go out and have a glass of wine sometime? And she said, well, that sounds nice. So she goes out to have a glass of wine with a nice neighbor, and the dog, Frank, chases him away. And so the neighbor goes running out into the street and gets hit by a car. It was a nice little bump, just kind of a wake-up call. Frank wasn't going to let Rosie replace him. And so you watch this. And so this lady across the street, I mentioned it to her, and I sent a little thing on text. She watched the movie three times. And she says, Frank is with me. Frank is with me. He's with me. And I said, yes, he is with you. I said, Frank está siempre en tu corazón. That's my little bit of Fran Spanish that says, Frank is always in your heart. And so she comes over. Every time she comes to the house, she wants to throw her arms around me. And so it's life has these strange sort of ways to wake you up. He's still here. The little dog that he was so fond of was this little white one. And she said, now this little dog, Frank's dog, she sleeps on Frank's side of the bed. And I said, well, Frank's just trying to tell you that he's right next to you. <laughs> she doesn't question it. Just as everybody wants to say, Frank drown. Frank not drown. Frank good swimmer. Frank not drown. I don't accept he drowned. He's a good, good swimmer. And I said, well, he's no longer on the planet. I think he was hit by the barge. Maybe that's the reason he died. But he's still here. Last little bit of Ernest Holmes. You already are a spiritual being. And when the mind understands this and embodies its essence, then that which you are in, the invisible, will become more apparent to your own visible self, that you're a soul. Lastly, let us see if we cannot discover what blocks the way to this self-realization. That's what they're doing in the class, by the way. Thomas Merton did this little poem, and it says, don't ask me what my name is or what religion I am. He says, ask me what brings me alive and sets my purpose on fire, and then ask me where is the block to my life living that. And he's saying the same thing. What is blocking you from living the fullness of your soul's expression? Last little bit of Ernest Holmes. What blocks the way? We shall not discover any block in reality itself, that's the big R, big I, but in our attitude toward this. Now that man has reached the stage of self-choice, he can temporarily, but not permanently, block this, his own divine intention. We can stop our divinity from expressing by saying, I've got to stay in the container of me because I have obligations and miles to go before I sleep. Browning said that man can desecrate but never lose his divine spark. It is always there. I am with you always, even until the ends of the world. That's what spirit says. So let us suppose that you are spirit, soul, and body, as the Bible states, and that your spirit already is perfect, an individualized center of the consciousness of God, and that God has made out of you, from he's made you out of he says himself or herself or it. God has made you out of herself. Whoa, that's kind of daunting, isn't it, Tia? Kind of sit up straight with that one. The only material that he had was the substance of his own being. So the only mind that he had to implant in you was his mind. Whoa, are you saying, Sylvie, that the mind of God exists within you? And a Dina Braden and a Rava Walker, the mind of God exists within all of you? Wow, it's kind of a daunting little thing to contemplate, isn't it, Thomas? So then what would this mind reveal? He had not. He had to implant it in you as his mind. The only spirit he had to impart was his own self. 
And so then we realize that we're part of this divine emergence and it wants to reveal itself. So let me do a little a closing meditation as we open to that sense of connectedness to the one. Be still. And when the mind is still, let's invite the heart to open and discover the breath, the breath that is always breathing us. And in that discovery, in this sacred moment of now, we realize in the past that breath was always breathing me. And when I leave this mortal coil, the breath will leave, but it'll still be here because breath is another word for spirit. So in this second phase of life, we're discovering who we are yet again. And we're smiling to that realization. It's not about David. It's not about the individual or the container. When you transcend the container, you become like those cranes. You become part of the energy of the field of oneness. And as you look out on nature, as we're having snow, think about the amazing oneness within a snow, within a weather pattern. Everybody is sharing this precipitation and this cold. And and it's not like God is punishing some with more cold and cherishing others with less. It's all part of the, mm, the journey. The journey to nowhere. The journey to now here. Uh, and so as Ram Das reminds me to be here now with what is, and when I should encounter sadness or suffering, could I find the light within that sadness, the light within that suffering, so that everything is accepted, the deepest acceptance, and that the suffering is necessary for the freedom to reclaim the soul. And so we open to life on life's terms, right where we are, grateful for the ripening of the soul in this process of eldering, becoming an elder in the tribe, no longer chasing after the world's approval or the world's affirmations, but finding a deepest acceptance of, of life right where it is with our own challenges. And by opening to those challenges, we're always a choice point. We find that there's grace. There's a, a loving presence Just by looking out in the world, we can find it, oftentimes from an animal. And then we think sometimes that we're taking care of our four-leggeds, and then we realize they're really taking care of us. And so something begins to shift. The me person becomes the we person, and the we person becomes all. All is the one life. Expressing uniquely. And we get to witness it. We get to bow to it. And then when some samsara comes along, samsara is the struggles, the suffering of life. By being present with that, we find right inherent within this samsara, the suffering, glimpses of nirvana. I am here with you. I'm always with you. And so we get to be that nirvana for each other. It may be a smile. It may be an embrace. It may be someone taking your hand when you feel lost. And then we realize it all works as a whole. We're not here to escape being human. 
in order for God to evolve, it needs us to evolve. And so we open to this shared experience of our own ripening of the soul, our own opening to grace, the grace of the moment. And grace defined as the unmerited givingness of the universe to all. And so when we open to this, unmerited means you don't have to earn it by doing good deeds, you know, no. You have it by right of being here. And so we open to the grace of this moment. And we smile. Because there's a sense of arriving home. Jesus called it the kingdom of heaven within. And he said, seek it first and everything is added unto you. Buddhism, they call it nirvana, a place of harmonic peace and deepest acceptance. It doesn't matter what you call it, but just to know that it's always there waiting for us in this holy instant of now. So we open, endlessly open, to the emptiness, to the signlessness, to the freedom. And we notice that as we let go of everything that we've been struggling with, the very stuff that we've been struggling with just seems to fall away. We don't need it anymore. We're not addicted to it. We're not addicted to our patterns of unskillfulness. Those patterns have fallen away. It's the death and the rebirth. The death of the one who's addicted to life and its challenges, and then the resurrection into the one who's free in the Christ consciousness, in the Buddha consciousness, in the awakened presence of divine love. And that is what's calling all of us. And then we hear that beautiful prayer, beloved, this life belongs to you. Do with it as you will. And then divine love is guiding us, assisting us, motivating us in all we do, in all we are, and every single moment is a moment of Nirvana. When we meet the suffering, we transform it. How sweet it is. With gratitude, we let this unfold throughout our experience as we say yes, a thousand times yes. And then life becomes the great teacher. And we smile, knowing all is well and all shall be well. So it is. We never got the ding of the bell, did we? Oh, we'll do a closure of the bell. Thank you, my beloved. listening to our podcast. For more information, please visit www.cslhuntsville.org.